Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. This is the Movement Toward Change podcast. We are using dance as a means to cultivate community and start conversation. Today, we are honored to speak with Dr. Miriam Rowan. Dr. Rowan is a former professional dancer with the San Francisco Ballet. She is currently a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in performing artists and athletes. Dr. Rowan is an instructor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and practice at practices at both McLean Hospital and through private practice. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. You are so welcome. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you enter the specified field of dance psychology? Yeah, so um, I, as you said, I was a dancer and um, did my training uh, in New York City starting seriously when I was about 12 and I went through the School of American Ballet and then um, mostly danced with the San Francisco Ballet. Um, and as you all know, and probably one of the reasons for this podcast is that dance is extremely hard. It's a really extremely hard discipline. And I had to find ways to navigate it for myself. And I also observed a lot of challenges in my friends and coworkers around me over the years. Um, and then I think what got me into the specific field of psychology was at one point, my dad got really interested in Zen Buddhism, and I was taking a comparative religion course on the side while I was dancing with the San Francisco Ballet, and I was trying to figure out, like, how can I reduce my performance anxiety? Yeah. So um, I started to think about like, how Buddhism could be helpful, how, how mindfulness and meditation could be helpful in that practice and um, was sort of experimenting on myself um, and found it so helpful. And then I ended up writing this, uh, this paper for school on Zen and the art of ballet, which is sort of a take on Zen and the art of archery, which is a well-known book. So it started that way. Um, and then I was very interested in um, helping field, sort of come by it naturally. So I kind of went there as well. Um, so wanted to do something that was a bit less self-focused you know, dance, is, as you know, is very, um, we spend our time as an occupational hazard. We spend our time focused on the mirror and focused on self-correction and um, performing. And I was really interested in building a lifestyle and an orientation as I was maturing, as I into womanhood. Um, that was really focused on um, ideas and on others. That's so cool. Um, so what would you say has been the most fulfilling part of your career? Well, I, I think the most fulfilling thing is integrating the two, right? Mm -hmm. Just to have the advantage to have been an artist and be so focused on the world, the, this world of beauty and aesthetics and um, music, stories, right? And then to bring that sort of early training into, into work with people and people's stories um, is has been so fulfilling. And I, I think the combination of the two, I mean, you may know this from being dancers, this is, there's this idea of like, you never stop growing, you never stop learning. And psychology is a little bit like dance in that way. There's a bit of mystery to it. There's a, you're constantly trying to refine your understanding and refine your process and um, do the very best that you can in, in a particular moment in time. So what would you say are some of the mental health concerns that are most prominent in dancers? So it's a good question. There are um, really a few epidemiological studies or um, understanding generally of the mental health needs of dancers um, as a population in particular. Um, and I'm considering dancers to be mostly in the range of adolescents and young adults and some kind of mid um, middle age adults, but mostly adolescents and young adults. Um, research has largely focused on eating disorders with this group, right? And it's largely been small studies. Um, so we don't have a ton of information. Um, the, what we do see in terms of eating disorders, and I'll start there, is um, that there are differences that, um, that have been observed in dancers. So I'm thinking of one study out of um, Germany in Berlin, Neumarker, who was um, using the eating disorder inventory, which is like a structured measure um, to assess various, um, various uh, eating disorder symptoms towards a diagnosis of a specific eating disorder. 
And they found that female dancers, um, when compared to controls, controls being um, female non-dancers, um, were seen to have significantly higher scores on um, five different subscales of this inventory. I'm not going to go into the inventory in detail, but that's a lot, right? And um, I won't go into the like all of the the different subscales and what they mean, but that's a big difference. And um, with um, even male dancers, there was one subscale relative to non-dancers who are male. Um, where they were elevated, significantly elevated. Um, so we do see differences. Um, and, and that's just one small study. There are uh, actually several small studies out there on um, eating disorders and dancers relative to the general population. But we also see, so there's eating disorders, and then we also see in dancer populations um, body dysmorphia, which is actually considered um, under the category of obsessive compulsive and related disorders. Um, so what that tends to be is our dancers who are um, fixated um, quite intensively on part of the body as problematic, right? So dancers can often have, an, and this is mostly anecdotal in my work, in my work, um, in my collaboration with other therapists doing work with dancers, that we see a lot of preoccupations with appearance, um, taking up at least an hour a day, right? And they're repetitive behaviors, like a lot of mirror checking, right? And I, I imagine that there are dancers out there that are smiling at this. Um, and of course, you have to differentiate between checking in the mirror in a ballet class to fix your line or your turnout and sort of like obsessive mirror checking throughout the day to um, see how you appear, um, appearance-wise. Um, and so this can cause those significant distress, right? So that's a lot. The other piece is, uh, is injuries, right? So injuries um, anecdotally increase um, risk for development of eating disorders, as well as a lot of other mental health struggles, including anxiety and depression, right? Um, and part of that is that dancers are so focused on this pursuit that really has a, a small window of time where they can really um, get the most out of their dance career. And um, injuries are a huge setback. Um, so there's grief, right? There's anxiety about when will I be able to come back? There's a real, real feeling of um, disempowerment or a lack of uh, feeling a strong sense of identity when injuries arise. Um, there's some research that shows that relative to non-dancers, dancers who are injured uh, experience higher levels of body satisfaction, right? More sort of like drive for thinness, like doing things to sort of um, achieve thinness, um, more bulimia, and higher levels of perfectionism, right? So all of that gets activated when there's an injury, right? Um, within injuries and also when a dancer is not injured, I, I see a lot in dancers compulsive exercise. So there's, this is always hard in the elite athlete, what, what constitutes as over-exercise, right? We could have a long conversation on that, but um, compulsive exercise really has to do with um, when a dancer really can't tolerate having a day off of exercise at all. And what happens is then dancers actually get into a cycle where they're not allowing their bodies to rest and recharge, right? So, which is actually very problematic and, and can decrease um, performance, right? So we see that a lot. Um, and then another piece that um, doesn't get talked about a lot, but um, I see often when I'm working with dancers is um, what I'll call um, body disregard, right? So this is a concept that's studied a bit um, in the research. And um, we think about body regard. It's like how one perceives and experiences and cares for our, how we care for our bodies, right? Um, and people who have lower levels of body regard um, in the literature are identified as being less connected with their bodily experiences. Um, tend to devalue their body and show indifference towards protecting or caring for their body, right? So I'm not saying all dancers do this, but there are some out there, right, um, who present with this, right? Um, and, a, and an important point here is that um, for people in the general population, so we can imagine that this might be true of the dance population, and in the literature, Right? Um, and this is mostly spearheaded by a researcher um, named Um, 
when people have body disregard, right? Um, it can often facilitate or be a, a, a factor in a person engaging in self-injury, right? Um, so what we call like non-suicidal self-injury, right? Or things like cutting and that kind of thing. And I have seen this um, on several occasions in my work with dancers is that cutting can emerge um, as well as other forms of self-injury, right? So this is a real concerning area for, for some dancers and um, absolutely worthy of more exploration, right? Um, because what this is, is it's about experiencing sort of detachment from the body and, um, and um, it makes it easier then for a person to harm one's body when under a lot of distress, right? So we see that. I, I've seen suicidal ideation in dancers, right? Um, and these two things are a particular concern in our time of COVID, right? Where we really are, um, it just, the pressure is on for everybody in the general population, not only dancers, right? And then dancers just being unable to really um, achieve their full potential, taking class on Zoom, et cetera, right? right? So all of those are important. The last thing I'll say, I know I'm saying a lot here, um, the last thing I'll say is that um, I do see sometimes overuse and abuse of painkillers and um, dancing on injury and both together, right? Um, and there's some, there's a small study um, that came out around um, demonstrating female dancers as, um, and it was just that they looked at female dancers, they didn't look at male dancers who reported greater use of alcohol and prescription and street drugs than um, non-injured dancers. That comes up as well. So all of that, right, um, can be present in dancers. And again, there's a there's a high need for more uh, more research and understanding in this area. Going back to that over exercising, um, I think that can be hard for dancers to tell because they might, you know, be in class for a few hours, and that's just because that's what's on their schedule that day. Are there any other indications that they might want to reconsider how much they're exercising besides, you know, being okay with taking a day of rest? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are some sort of, um, I looked at this a bit in my dissertation as well, um, but there, um, if we think about like for an elite athlete, and this is not just dancers, um, and this is, this is true of other elite athletes, is that we, the, it's a different measure of what is over-exercise. One of the things we think about is um, a dancer who is hiding their exercise from their own trainers, from their own teachers, and um, and their um, their peers, their classmates, right? Because then there's an indication that okay, this is more, this is more so, and also would be somewhat frowned upon, right? And of course, this could get mixed up a little bit with like competition and why somebody would hide hide their degree of exercise too. So it's it's this is not a cut and dry uh, situation, and it's sort of a case by case um, individual evaluation. Helpful to you know I, when we're looking at like what you know is this sort of pathological, right? Um, but um, hiding from others, like exercising in secret, really a lot of distress around taking a day off. Right where there's like real mood shifts um, or preoccupation throughout the day, unable to be in the present moment because one's worrying about the fact that they haven't exercised. And we're not talking about like one day out of a year or out of a month. We're talking about like every weekend or right that there's a constant feeling of like worry all the time, and one can't settle into a family gathering around Thanksgiving or whatever. Right? That's not a way to live. That's no fun. So what are the ways in which dance and movement can help create more positive mental health? Mm, that, that I like because I think it, it is something that doesn't get spoken about as often. Um, I, I know personally and also um, thinking about my colleagues is this sort of emotional release that comes from dancing. If you just think about even social dancing, dealing the music, the rhythm and the music, it's just such a, it's something that um, has existed like across time and even in uh, sort of, um, pre-literate period, right? And, um, and it's so cathartic for people, right? And I think the other piece is, um, at least in sort of that highly disciplined dance um, setting, is that there's a lot of opportunity to, to enhance 
cognitive functions or at least maintain them, like constantly having to attend um, fully to what the teacher is saying, mimic back, um, string, remembering strings of information, visual spatial information um, has just incredible power um, in terms of like brain function over time, right? So there's that too. Um, dancers often have quite full schedules, especially if they're in school and working outside of their dancing. What tools can we use to manage the anxieties that might arise with a full plate and that might not be able to be avoided? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I think one of the things that can be so important is just having many, many moments throughout the day. Um, that dancers kind of take, take sort of what I call a mindful moment, right? Where you just like walk down the hall to your next class and it's like, take a breath, right? And when you breathe in, notice the breath coming through your nostrils and then notice how the breath comes out through your mouth, right? And slower on the exhale, right? Um, when you breathe out, your heart beats a little bit slower than when you breathe in. So you can reduce your heart rate and activate what we call the parasympathetic nervous system, right, which is the rest and digest system. Um, and we really need as many moments in that, in that space, because the rest of the time we're spending most of our day up activated in the sympathetic nervous system, right, more of the fight or flight system, right? So we need to be able to, it's a little bit like dance, we need to plie before we jump, right? Um, it's, it's super important to have multiple moments Right? The other piece is that it's a moment where you're really focused on the present breath and a sensation in your body rather than thinking about what's to come, either in the near future worries or the far future worries, right? Or what just happened in the past or the far past, right? And anytime we're in those spaces, um, it can activate a lot of a lot of distress, right? When we have a thought that's a stress-related thought, what it does is it activates a bunch of different system hormones. It activates a, a whole cascade of hormones, um, heart rate up, all that in the body. So um, where we set our focus is so important, right? Um, the other piece is just dancers tend to be so critical and hard on themselves, right? Um, and, and sometimes even, you may have noticed this, there's a function to that, right? Where dancers can be really, really critical and they have this idea that that's gonna make them a better dancer, right? That they're gonna catch all of the errors that they're making in their technique and everything like that. And, you know, to a certain extent, uh, attention to detail is helpful in that way. The problem is, is that it can very quickly under pressure kind of morph into a lot of really harsh self-judgments, right? that makes it really hard to um, have a mood and optimism that you need to be able to have motivation to do this kind of strenuous training. Kind of going off of that, what does self-care mean to you and how can we check in to see if we're taking care of ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a related question, right? Um, self-care to me is how do we get our body into a cycle where it gets to rest so it can bounce back, right? And our mind where it can rest and bounce back. And how do we give ourselves space, right? To really um, be in sort of like a being mind rather than a doing mind, right? Um, so that we can really open up space to be creative, right? To journal, to draw, to, you know, pick out things that we, that appeal to us, you know, all of those things taking care of our home, right? Um, anything that we do to sort of strengthen our sense of selves, right? Our sense of self and um, our sense of what's important. And that really um, pulls in all of the things that we value in life, right? So we're really walking, we're really living a life that is in accordance with the things that we value the most, right? Because that's, that's where we can be most centered. So I often work with dancers from a value-based perspective, kind of thinking about like, what are those core things, right? That keep you going and bring meaning, meaning and purpose. Otherwise we just end up being these sort of robots in the studio. That's no fun. Mm -hmm. I like that idea of being and not always doing. I think 
as dancers, that's kind of, there's this mindset, we always have to be doing something, we're always on to the next thing. It's like we check off a box, and then we add another box to that list. I Yeah, I love that you bring that up, because it really, there's this feeling sometimes like resting and being is not productive, right? And, and I see this all the time when working with dancers, and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's actually extremely important and highly productive. Uh, what are some coping skills you recommend dancers use while in class if they are experiencing negative self-talk? So there's this whole idea in psychology, you know, the, there was a wave of sort of positive psychology, um, which is really about like taking a thought and saying like, how could I make this thought more positive, right? Um, and I tend to, um, and also this is in the sports psychology literature now, is that they found that you know, when you're, ta- when you're spending the time in your brain, like thinking about, okay, this is the thought I'm having and how can I restructure it so that it's more positive, that's taking up a lot of time in your brain. And there's a lot of cognitive load associated with that, right? So it's actually quite distracting and it's like extra work on top of all the work you're doing to remember where your hand placement should be, where your A-palma is, where you're, right? All those things, right? So, um, I like to think more in terms of just getting the mind back to the present moment as quickly as possible, right? Um, And really understanding that many of the thoughts we have in class are unhelpful or just distractions, right? Um, So um, focusing on the very specific intention in the movement, like we call like these like mental, these visual markers of like one thing to focus on with each movement or one or two cues right can keep us really engaged in the present moment movement rather than having us kind of wondering about like what the choreographer is thinking about us and right which is so easy to do right and it's like our minds looking for control right um the most control we have is in the present moment right we can't control what somebody thinks of us we can try Dancers can be quite good at it for a while, but, you know, in the end, what we can control is what we do in our present moment focus. Hmm. I really like that idea of using the movement as a way to kind of center yourself and keep in the present moment. Yeah, I, I often like tell myself that the feedback can't come in the middle of the process because I find that if I'm like in the middle of a combination and then I'm like judging myself, it's like, I haven't even finished the combination yet. It's like you're, you're saying a sentence and you're judging what you're saying before you even finish. It's like, you know, let it flow, right? It breaks us out of that flow state, right? There's a lot of research too. I mean, for anyone interested, there's a lot of literature you can go to on creativity and getting into flow states. It's super helpful to learn from all of the knowledge that's out there, right? I'm always telling um dancers to diversify their knowledge base right um i love that um when dancers are reading and watching documentaries and thinking about how to feed that back into who they are and really rather than seeing themselves as like automatons right uh or that ballet has to be 110 percent, nothing else can happen can be in my life but it's like well, let's go to the art museum right let's let's learn about like pointillism, you know, let's like figure out how to integrate that into, into my creative process, even in the midst of all this repetitiveness and, and drudgery and physical fatigue and all that. So kind of expanding on that idea of, you know, your inner thoughts and self-talk. Um, I know as dancers, we are often spending a lot of time in front of a mirror, possibly wearing form-fitting clothing in front of many people. What are some ways we can speak kindly to ourselves and focus more on the work itself rather than our appearance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is hard. I think this is a real challenge for dancers because, and it really, it depends, it depends on what school you're in, what company you're in, sort of values of leadership that kind of influence what all the dancers are focusing on, right? And holding is important. Um, but in those moments, you know, those thoughts may arise, right? Um, and it's how much weight, how much do we feed into those thoughts, right? I think a good, um, a useful um, kind of way to work with this is to ask yourself, is this effective, 
right? Like, what's my goal, right? Is my goal to just beat myself up and feel bad about myself, right? Or is my goal to um, hit all my marks in this moment, right? And, and remember every, um, every note that I got, right? Um, it's really important to, to do that and recognize that like um, thinking that way just is most of the time a waste of time, right? It's not something that we can change in the present moment, right? We, only, we can only change again what, what we have in the present moment, right? So if we're thinking about, oh, 30 seconds ago, I fell, <laughs> right? Then, I mean, which we do, then we can't get back up and like be confident enough that we're not gonna fall again push forward. Um, on a similar note, um, there's a lot of information about how a dancer is supposed to eat, exercise, look, and this might be coming from social media, from peers, from teachers. How can we tune out these voices and become more aware of what we need as individuals? I mean, this is such a good question, such a rich, important question, and we could spend probably hours on it. Um, you know, I don't know what you guys think. You're a different generation than me. Um, but, you know, I find that social media can be so um, unhelpful <laughs> for a lot of people. There's, you know, a lot of people out there that are struggling with addictions with social media even, right? But um, there is... Um, research out there with athletes as well, um, that images of athletes um, looking at for a young woman, right, for example, um, and also this, this also applies with men, but I'll, I'll use um, female dancers as, as an example, or female athletes, when they, um, when they look at images of female athletes um, that are highly sexualized or um, objectified in some way or um, very, very thin, lots of makeup polish. Um, the literature shows that it makes, it makes them start to have more negative body talk, right? Um, so, so to know that that's actually happening, that there's, a, there's a plenty of research on this is, is like we, we self-objectify our bodies, right? when we look at those types of images, right? So, and, and it's just full of them, right? <laughs> That's all there is on social media, right? Like following the models, following, right? And, you know, I mean, there's, it's fun to watch dancers do like 20 pirouettes and it's fun to, you know, whatever that, you know, to see what's out there and to be engaged and um, it can be really inspiring and motivating. Like, I'm gonna try that, right? Um, but those um, very specific like static images that aren't movement based, especially um, is sort of like a subliminal message to our brain, right? So there's that. And I also like to think just generally about social media for, for young people is like uh, going back to values, like you are a consumer, right? You are a consumer of information on, on line and um, it's important to pay attention to the platforms that you're engaging with, right? And how that, how that influences your mind, right? It is okay to unfollow things. Like I always think it's, it's helpful to take like little social media breaks and do an experiment where you, you kind of abstain for a week and then you observe the positive benefits of that, right? You observe the things that were helpful to you about that. That was one part of your question. I, I think social media popped out as like, bam, let's talk about that. Yeah, it's very prevalent right now, for sure. The other part of the question might be if we receive comments from our peers or our teachers about what we're supposed to be doing or how we're supposed to look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, this happens, right? Um, it, it's um, problematic, right? Often I, I see people's kind of, their energy just <laughs> crashes and you get these types of comments, it can feel really pressured. Um, I think where it's possible to kind of make a decision about like what you really think um, in terms of your own self-direction, it's better. I think journaling, becoming kind of strong in your own understanding of reality, right, is, is important in those moments, um, not to um, take all your cues from the external right, to try to think about how to take cues from 
um, a much more um, kind of into private place, right? That's within you. Oftentimes we get trained in dance to take on the observer's perspective, right? Um, so this is where I think finding ways to, um, to um, get cues from ourselves and our own experience, right? Becoming more in tune with what we're experiencing emotionally, right? Um, sometimes I find that um, dancers can be really helped by just sort of asking them, like, write a list of emotions down, right? And then get a sense of, like, when you're experiencing those emotions in your day-to-day, -day, right? Um, and like when you're in interactions, like how does it make you feel? Like where, what's the emotion that's arising in your interaction with this person versus that person versus being in the studio, right? And to adopt, a, not draw any specific conclusions, but to just adopt a curiosity around um, your internal experience. I find that with dancers, that can be so helpful. What might be some signs or indications that a dancer should reach out to a mental health professional? Yeah, um, well, one thing for sure, and I would say this is the case with non-dancers, is if one is getting a lot of feedback from others in their lives, people who are trusted others, like questions like, how are you doing? Or, you know, you seem a little off or, right? Any kinds of, any kind of feedback like that can be an indication that there should be like a little bit of self-reflection or um, it might be worth maybe getting curious about why they're asking that question, what they're seeing, right? Um, so that's one, um, behaviors, right? Certain behaviors can indicate that. So, um, if as a dancer, you are real, you are losing motivation on a regular basis to do your dishes, to go grocery shopping, to, you know, shower, right? Um, all of those, what we call activities of daily living, right? Um, if those are starting to fall by the wayside, um, it's an important indication that maybe something's off. You're not kind of operating at your peak um, or even at a everyday normal level of energy and functioning, right? Um, physical sensations can also be a helpful indication. So if you're noticing feeling jittery, if you're noticing your legs shaking often, like um, noticing um, muscle tension, not related to just being kind of tight, from dancing, but just like tension um, or high reactivity like around other people, like somebody walks into a room and there's like anytime you're around people, you're feeling really agitated, right? Um, or grumpy, right? Those are all things that can be helpful indicators. Um, one big one is if your sleep is off, right? So if you're noticing things like difficulty falling asleep, right? At night with racing thoughts in your head, difficulty staying asleep during the night um, or early morning awakening. That's a big one um, that can often um, show up when um, depression is in the picture, right? In particular, we think about like a melancholic depression. I'm not gonna go into what that means exactly, but we see a lot of early morning awakening, um, teeth grinding, right? <laughs> can be one, um, things like that. Um, and let's see, I think a lot of these sort of negative self-judgments, you know, really noticing the, the tone in which um, one speaks to themselves or relates to themselves. So um, if, if, if a dancer is noticing, I'll say, if you're noticing in class when you're, or on, in a rehearsal, that your kind of mental dialogue, mental, mental chatter is less about sort of the analytical correcting yourself, oh, I got to make this better, I got to, right, and gets a, very personal, like, like, um, you're never going to be good, you're just a bad dancer, right? All those types of um, really more kind of negative self-talk, if that's starting to come up, that's a, a huge indicator. Um, one big one, if you are injured and you are continuing to dance on injury, that's definitely a sign, right? Um, hopelessness, right? Feeling a little bit like not experiencing the joy of dance, right? Um, and then another one I think that um, comes up for people is panic attack, right? Um, where it, like, say you're just sort of getting ready for a class or getting ready for a performance or at the grocery store or wherever, and you notice like you just suddenly have this high elevated sort of um, feeling of distress, like you might even be having a heart attack, or something like that. 
um, and but maybe it's not right that 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 that's a moment where it's an indication that oh maybe I've been suppressing my emotional experience and now it's bubbling up right that comes up well importantly um, is that if you're having thoughts that um, you wish you could go to bed and not wake up right um, thinking about like when it's easier like what's the point in life like those types of thoughts right um, Suicidal ideation, it's a big one, and I think one that um, I certainly wouldn't ignore. Um, really important to seek out mental health in, in those moments. So how should a dancer go about this process of finding someone to speak with? Yeah, it, that is another good question. So um, what I would say is there are, um, there are online resources and ways to find um, therapists, um, I always want to have a caveat, which is that um, there, you know, in this country, the way our medical system is set, set up and our, our mental health system, um, it's, it's really problematic depending on where you land socioeconomically, right? So some people have access through their insurance to um, qualified mental health professionals. Other people don't even have insurance, right? Um, so my advice varies a lot depending on the dancer sitting in front of me and um, what um, you know, what kind of um, uh, advantages they may have in a situation versus disadvantages. Um, so um, one way to start, if you have health insurance, would be to call your insurance company and um, get a list of providers in your area, right? Um, Another option would be to go on something like psychologytoday.com and look for providers in your area and look for ones that who um, list that they take your insurance, right? Um, another thing that could be helpful is um, through, you know, it's a great resource, um, Career Transition for Dancers, which is now part of the Actors Fund in New York City. They have an on-staff social worker, so and they also have, um, through their website, you can access um, various resources on mental health care, ish, mental health issues. Um, but also, you can you can meet with the social worker, I believe, or at least it used to be set up this way. Go and look um, and get sort of um, recommendations on where to go next, resources in your area, um, and then. You know, the, the other thing is that for dancers who don't have health insurance, um, it really depends state by state um, what, what you can do in terms of accessing care. If you are very low income, right, and um, currently do not have health insur insurance through your work or through um, the Affordable Care Act, right, um, one thing uh, you can do is um, try to, um, qualify for Medicaid, right? Um, and what that does is it opens up opportunities to, um, to have health insurance that way, right? So to get free health insurance, for example, or very low cost health insurance. Um, so lots of opportunities through that. Sometimes um, municipal hospitals have uh, mental health care um, available, so you can go into municipal hospitals. And then there's also, uh, throughout the country, tons of different types of community clinics, right? Um, oftentimes, there are clinics that are low cost. Uh, like, for example, in New York City, there are um, training clinics set up. And, and also in the Boston area, where I am right now, um, other large cities, there are training clinics that are actually part of social work and psychology training programs. And so you'll be getting care from um, psychologists who are currently not licensed and fully practicing, um, but under the supervision of experienced um, licensed practitioners, and they're, um, they can provide care as well um, at very low cost. So that's a nice option if, um, if you're limited in terms of resources. One other thing I wanted to mention is that there are, you know, we're in such a great time for the mental health care in the dance world. Um, you know, you can see if you look in dance magazine, all that, and you guys, what you're doing, it's like, there's just this new wave of dancers who are, are saying like, you know, the, the way we've done things, the status quo just is not working. And dancers really suffer without support in this highly competitive career. So what we're seeing is like websites popping up, lots of podcasts, like you're doing, like 
on um, education around health issues. And I just encourage dancers out there to really like suck up all that information, right? And um, use it to your advantage. Um, Minding the Gap um, is a resource, is a website um, that uh, is doing a lot of work to pull together resources for dance around mental health care issues. Um, and then in the interim, I don't think this is um, sufficient for a dancer struggling with a real serious mental health concern, but um, there are lots of different types of apps now, right? So um, like basic cognitive behavioral therapy apps. Um, there are meditation apps out there. Um, I love Insight Timer. It's free. It's like so many different types of guided meditations. Headspace, right? The app called Calm. Those are all um, fun to play around with. And if you can build in some sort of mindfulness practice, that can be extremely helpful as sort of a starting point, but definitely not sufficient for the person struggling with know, as a real depression or anxiety disorder or something like that. So once a dancer finds a therapist, how might they be able to tell if it's a good fit? Yeah, so um, the, that is a very good question because um, research shows that a successful outcome in therapy is more than anything influenced by what we call the therapeutic alliance. So above and beyond the type of treatment, right? the therapy alliance, the connection between the patient and the therapist is so, so, so important for um, a successful outcome, right? Um, so what I'm talking about the alliance, I, I usually like to think about it in, um, in three, sort of three ideas, three constructs. So one is like the goal, like what are the goals that you have going into therapy? And does your therapist really understand it, right? Are they getting within the first one to three sessions, do you feel like they're truly understanding your goals, right? Or if they don't understand your goals, do they have like a really clear, compassionate rationale for why that you might wanna reconsider that goal, right? That's okay, right? It's good to be challenged, right? Um, so, but that at, at the end of the day, after sort of the third, fourth session, that you're getting a real sense that like they understand that you guys are on the same page about what you wanna work on. Right. So that's that. And then there's the next construct is task. Right. So what are the tasks? How you have these goals? How is the therapist proposing that you're going to you're going to meet those goals? Right. Like what are the things you're going to actually do in therapy? Are you feeling comfortable with that? Do You feel like you have a clear idea of what that's going to look like. Um, sometimes we can't have a fully clear idea, but something so that you don't feel like you're going in confused every every session. Right. Um, so, and you can ask your therapist, like, okay, so I have these goals, like, what, are, how do you propose, or how do you tend to work with these types of problems, right? It's one really good question, and, and allow them, there's nothing wrong with interviewing your therapist a little bit, too, right? I think some dancers can be shy and feel, like, less assertive around those things, but it's perfectly fine to, you know, ask your therapist for information on, on how they work, right? Um, and then. Lastly, the, this is harder to assess, right? But the construct is bond, right? Like what is the bond between you and the therapist, right? So um, it can be, yeah, I think one question to ask is like, do you feel like you can be open and honest person, right? Do you feel like when you say something that's maybe hard to say that you're not feeling, now to a certain extent, whenever, when we say something that's a little vulnerable and hard to say, especially if we're not used to it, we're gonna feel a little uncomfortable right? So that's not what I'm talking about. Do you feel very uncomfortable, right? Like, and that the person um, is not able to be supportive, um, you know, versus do you feel like, okay, I'm uncomfortable because this is hard to say, but they're not making it any more uncomfortable <laughs> than I already am, right? So that can be one thing, right? And just like asking the question, like, do you really feel like they understand where you're coming from, that they understand the context that you're in, right? I think this is the part that's hardest for dancers seeking therapy is that the dance world is can be so specific and the dancer's experience can be so specific that sometimes it can feel like when you go to a therapist who has no experience with with a dancer like how could I bond with them right their worldview might feel extremely different right um I would say you know give people a chance right 
Um, and you, you know, you never know what type of experience, life experience, the therapist have had that might be helpful. Um, and sometimes, you know, you may end up in the position of being the educator on some of the dance world or suggesting reading for them on, you know, to understand the dance experience. And, um, so, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, it's, it's necessary to just go running if, if your therapist has never met, you know, never um, been a dancer themselves, for example, right? Um, so those are, those are the really, the sort of rules of thumb there. And then I think uh, a basic rule of thumb also is like, I always say to anyone who walks in my door after you know I do a consultation, like try to do three sessions with me, right? Um, and because the first session, nerves are gonna be up. It's gonna be weird, right? Especially if you've never done therapy before. Um, and then the second session, it's kind of easier to see kind of a little bit through the anxiety and the weirdness of it. Third session, you're really starting to get clear on goals and that question of like does this my therapist understand my goals and how do they propose getting there so by three sessions maybe four i would say it, that's really when i think it's appropriate to really make a clear decision am i going to commit to this or am i am i gonna try to go to somebody else right um i will put in a plug that um making a really strong commitment to um therapy for a period of time can be really helpful and it'll help you not to bounce right after after a couple of sessions you know sometimes it's uncomfortable sometimes therapy is hard right um and doesn't just because something's hard as we know as dancers doesn't mean it um it uh should be escaped right um but i do think that keeping the rule of thumb of goals task and bond um is extremely important and if you're really uncomfortable it's okay to find somebody else and I'm assuming most dancers are probably not going to have access to a therapist that used to be a professional dancer or that has a lot of experience working with dancers. So maybe going into the session, realizing I, I might need to explain a little more about my lifestyle and my profession is important. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there are, you know, there are things that they can read. I think, I, I think a dancer can explain like, you know, this is how my day is set up. I class from this time to this time every day, and then I do rehearsal, and then I look at the casting sheet, and then, right, um, and then at you know 7:30 p.m. I'm at the theater getting ready to perform. <laughs> you know, I'm home at 10 at night. Right? I think all of those things are very, very important. Right? And exactly, just educate them. Right? Yeah. Because dance is a, it's a culture, right? It's a subculture, right? It's really important, right? Um, I will say there are therapists out there like me, like others I know who were dancers and do understand or perhaps have a background uh, in the arts in some way. And sometimes that, that can just make for easier, faster, more, more relatable um, connection. Um, but absolutely, it's fine to go with somebody who maybe is just a really strong therapist. What is the number one piece of advice you would like to give to the movement toward change dance community? Diversify your knowledge base and experiences, right? Um, it's so important to educate yourself. A lot of dancers are spending their time in the studio and that's great. And there's a lot of learning that's happening there. There's also a lot of learning that um, for some dancers can get missed when they're in the studio for eight hours out of every day. Right. So listen to podcasts, read books, go to museums right? and then bring that into your artistic process. Um, and then in this moment, is there a specific quote that speaks to you? Yes. So this is this is a quote that's been speaking to me for years and years and years. And it is from this book um, by Rainier Maria Relka. Right. Um, and it's basically, um, it's Letters to a Young Poet. It's from the book Letters to a Young Poet, um, which is basically a conversation back and forth between uh, a young poet and his mentor, right? Um, Rainier Maria Relka, right? Um, and I, what I loved about it um, is sort of the mentorship around this quote, the sort of sense of um, helping an, an artist um, develop their craft in in their own path their own personal path right um 
Relka was less interested in developing um, somebody just to mimic him, but was, I think, really directing this particular student, mentee, um, in finding his own voice, right? Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the quote after. Um, but the idea here is, um, I'll start it um, on, I would like to beg you here, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now, perhaps then someday far in the future, you will gradually without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Uh, so I just love that quote. And, um, and I think this is, I think it resonates um, for me in terms of uh, the, the dancer letting go and being in that being mind space over the doing mind and understanding that we can't control all aspects of the future, right? And part of, part of the growth of an artist is tolerating the uncertainties. Right, and letting there be a little bit more flow. Mm -hmm. I really, I love that quote. Wow, gives us so much to think about. Yeah, yeah. the whole book is good. Highly recommended. We'll put it in the show notes for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> this was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us and taking the time to speak with us. Yes, thank you. You're so welcome. It's a pleasure to get a chance to speak with you both and um, just um, all the great work you're doing. I encourage you in it. Thank you. Uh, if you have further questions for Dr. Rowan or would like to schedule an appointment, you can contact her through her website, miriamrowan.com, which we will put in the show notes.